0: Good afternoon, my name is Rob Camprey. I'm a member of the Fort Mackay First Nation. Uh, this is a continued uh, conversation, question and answer with uh, various leaders, community leaders across Canada. Uh, today, we're joined by Ellis Ross. Uh, he's a politician in BC, a former chief of his nation. And uh, I'd like to uh, have uh, Mr. Ross introduce himself and uh, welcome to our question and answer.
1: Hey, glad to be here. My name is Ellis Ross. I'm born and raised on the village reserve on the west coast of British Columbia. I was elected to council in 2003 as a councillor. I uh, did that for eight years before I became the elected chief for two years. And then I got in by acclamation after that two-year run, and, and then we went to custom election. Uh, and then I actually resigned as chief councillor to run for MLA for my riding to actually help the provincial government uh, speed up some of the projects and get them over the finish line for our region. And that's currently what I do today. I'm the MLA for Eskina.
0: We hope to kind of capture some uh, information or perspectives on on major projects. Um, What is the value proposition and why do you think you got yourself involved in the provincial politics?
1: Well, why I got involved in provincial politics is because LNG in B.C. actually took 15 years to accomplish against all kinds of opposition. Uh, We had uh, political parties in B.C. that opposed it. We had uh, activist organizations opposing it. And we had regular people who didn't understand the basic facts around LNG or re- resource development, opposing it. And so I I took it as far as I could as chief counselor, as chief of counsel, but I realized that the provincial government, BC, needed help because they couldn't get beyond the politics. And so I thought that uh, if I'm gonna help my region, if I'm gonna help my people, I gotta get to a higher level and, and start advocating for why resource development matters. Not only to the region, but also to the province and as a country, so that's that's really why I did it.
0: How did you get to that place of creating an understanding for your community to go from not understanding to understanding? What were some of the steps that you took to help create that so
1: to be fair, when, when I first got into council in two thousand and three, I was one of those people that opposed everything because I believed the narrative about the big bad white man and destroying Mother Earth. And, and so I opposed forestry, mining, uh, the aluminum smelter that's in my territory for the last 60 years. I opposed everything. And it was uh, one of my fellow counselors that told me that maybe I should research these projects and also I should look at all the social issues that my people are facing uh, currently and historically. And so when I started to research a history of uh, treatment of First Nations in, in BC and Canada, in my writing, uh, then I started to look at industrial development and started to look for facts in my own right. I started to realize that the narrative that I, I believed in all those years was wrong, including the idea that uh, somehow the white man today was responsible for where we we're at and the white man was actually holding us down. I mean, and in reality, uh, in 2004, when the Hyde Court case came out, I, I started to re- read up on rights and title. And I started to realize uh, our destiny is actually in our own hands. And so when all that learning I I learned uh, that I undertook, I actually took that and I went out to my people in uh, public meetings. I made them on the street. I'd meet them and I actually used social media. And I started to use the facts to actually show them that what they were being fed by the opposition actually wasn't true. So it was a very open and transparent, uh, accountable process, not only with myself, but everything I learned, I just went and gave it to people in, in black and white. I wouldn't try, uh, I wouldn't try, you know, dress it up any, I wouldn't try bend the truth. And the people, you realize that uh, what, what we were doing as Chief and council is actually uh, pretty honorable. So the last vote we had on LNG,
0: for example, for an LNG agreement, 92% in favor all based on facts, not just someone else's perspective, uh, influencing them, but really a collective understanding. I think that's important from a community development perspective. Oh yeah,
1: without a doubt. And the the thing that discouraged me the most when I first started this job, uh, back in 2003, I used to go to these conferences about indigenous rights and projects and rights and title. And I'd listen to these Aboriginal speakers speaking for like 45 minutes to an hour. And I used to applaud them because it was all full of rhetoric saying, oh, it's time for us, to, the government to listen to us. It's time for the white men to, to stop keeping us down. And then <laughs> somebody pointed out to me that uh, a lot of the stuff that was being said actually didn't offer any solutions. And so I started to listen to this, some of these aboriginal leaders. And I started to realize, yeah, they're not offering solutions. All they're doing is complaining and blaming. And so when I went back to my community, I, I kept telling them, our people, we got to stop that. We got to stop complaining. We got to stop making fiery speeches. And we got to start offering real solutions to people who got to get off welfare, who got to get off alcohol, who got to get off drug abuse. We got to stop our kids from going into uh, government care. We got to stop our people from going to uh, prison. And for that, we got to be really, really truthful about where we're at and where we want to get to. And it was a hard conversation. It, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror and finding out that actually we're part of the problem as well as we're part of the solution, that takes a lot of soul searching. But the benefits actually pay off tenfold.
0: What does your community do in terms of participation in the economy uh, within your traditional territory? Is it still the traditional hunting, trapping, fishing? Is it these new opportunities coming about from the LNG project for instance? So
1: we've experienced industrial development in our territory for the last seven years. but for the last seven years, we weren't involved. You know, a, a tremendous amount of wealth in our territory, but we did not see one penny of that. And so when rights and title case law evolved, especially with the uh, 2004 Huttek court case, we started to involved with the consultation and accommodation with these uh, projects that comes down that had to include us, not only uh, on the, the, the fishing and hunting side or the ceremonial purposes of our territory, but the economic component. So we, we addressed all of that. And so now how my community actually benefits is that uh, we've got agreements signed with these major project uh, uh, developers in our territory. And each agreement is different. Some are really largely based on the environmental impact of the project and much less on on the revenues. And the other projects like the new LNG projects are more based uh, on the revenue side of things, the jobs, the contracts, the training, And we leave the the environmental impact for our engagement in the environmental assessment processes. My band is probably 90% independent now, based on this strategy. We don't beg for money from Indian Affairs. We could care less about the Indian Act money at Country of Ottawa. Uh, Give you an example, uh, the federal government offered to to build us a new dock and a wharf in our our community, because ours is 50 years old and run down. And we said, okay, yeah, sure, but we're going to partner on it because we're going to put our own money into it. We built a fire hall. Uh, we help out our people within hard times of uh, like a recession and whatnot. We repaired our own soccer field. We do our own infrastructure, like we repair our own culverts. And it's, it's uh, the, the list is too long. To, to, like nobody even talks about the Indian Act, nobody talks about independence anymore. It's just that we're doing it, we're living it, and we're starting to regain our sense of pride and dignity as a people and as an organization so it's there's no looking back for us you know uh when i became chief counselor i took us out of treaty negotiations because i i i thought that really what our ancestors were fighting for was a share to uh, say and so when i was looking at what these projects were offering us we're getting jobs we're getting revenues we're getting contracts we're getting training and we can use the proceeds of this to acquire land either right purchase or with partnerships with the, the government now what i've noticed over the last uh, five years now is success breeds success and so previously when we had no money we used to have to beg you know to acquire land or beg for a project beg for money to build a, a rec center we're not begging anymore we're just doing stuff and so what happens now is that the federal government and provincial government actually come to our table on their, own, on their own and say, hey, we'd like to partner up on your new rec center. We'd like to partner up. Because they can see, you know, these guys are putting their own money into it. They're, they're developing their own future. They're developing their own infrastructure. We got to be part of that good news story. So it's, the, the roles have kind of reversed. And it's an incredible feeling to sit there and know that.
0: That's uh, such a powerful, powerful situation to be in so congratulations to that and obviously speaks a lot to your leadership um, to your community's leadership and your community's vision of where they want to be it's an awesome place it's an incredible place and you know that
1: uh you read about all the social issues first nations face in canada uh, per capita highest population prison per capita the highest number of kids in government care uh per capita all across the board everything that you think about that's bad with society, First Nations are at the top of that list. But the one thing that that, that I realized, that, that I saw across Canada, every single political organization seems to think that government has the answer for us. No, they don't. They do not have the answer. They'll come up with big announcements, they'll come up with big programs, but we've been doing that for the last 50 years, it's gotten us nowhere. The solution for First Nations issues in Canada and BC have to come from First Nations themselves. If you provide that solution, guaranteed all these governments will come to your table and they wouldn't help you. But going to the government to help them, ask for help, that hasn't helped work in the past. It's not gonna work in the future. That is not where our future lies.
0: Well, when you look at the reserve systems across Canada, um, it, was a, it was a direct um, ploy to separate communities so that they can isolate them.
1: I had to do this on two occasions when I was on chief of council and it was actually over 12 years ago, I was at a, at a meeting with these other leaders. And this subject came up, how do we work together? And this, this older leader that was sitting there, he said, you know, if a white man comes into our territory and he says, I want to do business. And we say, okay, pull up a chair, let's talk. But if our neighbor, or First Nation community, comes to our table and says, "I want to do business," we say, "Get the hell out of my territory." And this is like I'm more. My people back uh, ten years ago were more open to talking to a First Nation from Alberta than talking to my neighbors that just lived sixty kilometers down the road. And so when I started to look into this, I, I, it's it, and some of this goes back a long way. You know, we used to raid each other you know steal each other's women and their food and we used to you know go on raiding parties together then we'd feast together but when i looked at it you know what the, my neighbors down the road are suffering under the same pressure under poverty that my people are and it doesn't make any sense to me where my first nation community is successful and yet my neighbors down the road who come from a different tribe are still suffering under poverty so my first chance to, to actually address this was uh, a right-of-way clearing for the pipeline coming through both our territories. And the company said, we can't divide up this contract. It's, it's, not, it's not a big enough area, so we don't know what to do. Your band wants this contract, their band wants that contract. And so when I looked at the, the, the facts surrounding this, the, 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 my neighboring band had a legitimate forestry company that could do the clearing they had all the workers but they had no contracts my band had no equipment no experience no nothing so i convinced my council to say look let's willingly stand down and let our neighbors have that contract in fact we'll support them they'll come to their territory they'll do the right-of-way clearing and all we ask in return is that in the future they remember us and they return the favor somehow so I pitched this to the chief counselor of uh, my neighboring uh, community. His counsel was there, my counsel was there, and he said, OK, how do we do this? I said, we do it on a handshake. We get up, we shake hands, and we commit to this. No lawyers, no agreements. We do this leader to leader. And I, you got my witnesses here. Uh, I got yours. And so we're, he was kind of nervous, but he got up. We stood up, we shook hands, and his his community got the entire contract and it was it was such it was such a momentous occasion and they were so grateful they they got all their people employed they got the contract and it was, it was just a good feeling so we we did that again on a couple other occasions and it, it actually it it builds alliances and it builds a stronger province and it definitely builds up our communities this reconciliation idea that everybody's talking about, we got to do that as First Nations too. We've got to reconcile between the, the, all of our community, communities because we're all suffering. We all are.
0: Uh, not only do we have to reconcile uh, with Canada, but we have to reconcile with each other.
1: No doubt, in fact, uh, most of the mechanisms that, that we're talking about now, yeah, some of them are fabricated in the 20th, 20th century, uh, specifically overlap. But overlap existed long before the white men came. We used to fight over territories, but then it became formalized in these different processes under treaty negotiations or uh, under the old uh, treaty agreements signed uh, upon contact. But we really don't have to. If we were going want to help First Nations, push that overlap issue to the side for a bit and acknowledge that not one of our bands has enough capacity to fulfill all the requirements for all these major projects. You come to Kitimat, uh, my region where the LNG uh, development's happening, there's First Nations from all over BC and Canada working here, all over. We have First Nations that have contracts that are coming into our territory. And one of the things our people consciously decided said, we are not gonna block First Nations from coming into this territory to take part in the wealth generation of these projects. So th- th- this is a, uh, I wish this could be duplicated more because there, are, there is strength in numbers. Divide and conquer is what's been employed against us in the past. And uh, the more we are in, unite on contracts employment training, the stronger we can become as uh, Aboriginals in Canada.
0: We all have our strengths and weaknesses, but together we can bring those together to offset our weaknesses and really maximize our strengths. That's an important lesson to be told and to be learned by other communities on how we can do this collectively together. Again. You know, going back to your point around collective rights, collective community consultation, but it's all about us benefiting together as nations. We need to get back to a place where we all work together and get away from these boundaries of Alberta and BC, but as Indigenous people, we need to work from that perspective.
1: Definitely, especially when you think what's at stake. I mean, I've I've said a number of times, uh, I don't want my kids and my grandkids growing up the way I did. You know just going from paycheck to paycheck welfare unemployment insurance abusing drugs abusing alcohol i mean that that, that's a narrative that every first nation member falls into when they start to turn 13 14 years old and if we're going to break that we got to show them there's a way to survive in the 21st century there's a way to, to actually live a really good life and it doesn't mean that you're being a colonialist It doesn't mean that you're selling out It means as an individual, you can be proud of your future. You can be, you can have a strong family, you can have a strong community. Uh, We shouldn't be shaming anybody for actually pursuing their own future, a really good future, as opposed to what we're seeing right now.
0: I've heard you talk about those messages bring more harm to indigenous people because it's not the First Nations bringing those messages. So how do you you fight that battle?
1: You know, with facts. the, the one thing, I've had my runnings ins with uh, activists. Now, I don't call them really environmentalists because I've talked with environmentalists too. True environmentalists truly care about the environment. They truly do. And I do have the time to talk to them. But activists, you know, are, are seeking to sh- shut down the resource economy in Canada. I think there's a huge difference there. But what I, I don't think a lot of Canadians don't understand, that First Nations, under the, the rights and case law, you know, have the option to participate in environmental processes. And these are formal processes. It could be an environmental assessment under the BC uh, Environmental Assessment Act, or it could be a Canadian Environmental Assessment Act. So a First Nation community that chooses to participate in that, you know, you're in for the long haul, and you've got to basically understand and hire the capacity to understand all these technical terms that relate to environment environmental impact this is a tough job and so for the standards that uh, we see for the environmental uh, the LNG project in Kitimat the the standards here in Kitimat are actually higher than what's proposed in the BC Environmental Assessment Act and nobody has thanked the First Nations for that because it's us we're the ones that hired the standards we've looked at the standards proposed by the BC Environmental Assessment Office and say that's a good standard but you haven't considered this you know instead of digging 20 meters away from the river why don't you go 30 meters why don't you leave a buffer zone beside the river why don't you do this why don't you do that and the company these companies are willing to do this and so we have a higher level of standard here in canada for these major projects and i think first nations deserve that credit we're the ones that hired that standard it wasn't anybody else
0: we've had this relationship with the land and and we have a keen interest and understanding of the land. And a lot of times, like you say, um, that perspective is not being brought forward or respected. And I think with this new way forward in terms of indigenous engagement, whether it's UNDRIP, whether it's TRC, we do play a significant role in these major project developments um, as indigenous people.
1: Oh, definitely, without doubt. In fact, uh, if anything, given our LNG experience, we actually wrote the book on how to uh, bring these projects to fruition in BC, and, and especially in our region. I mean, look at it. We've, we've got buy-in from every single First Nation of Prince George to Kitimat. And that's the pipeline that was originally opposed for Chevron. Uh, we're the ones that actually uh, helped develop some of these First Nation coalitions, uh, with the First Nations Limited Partnership, uh, the Pacific Trails uh, First Nations uh, group. Uh, we, we were fortunate back in the day that we had uh, leaders that didn't understand the technicalities of what we we're go- facing in terms of these projects, but they understood that we had to get together, we had to join together for the benefit of our people. Uh, we had leaders back in the day that didn't care about uh, the organizations we represented, they didn't care about political organizations, they were looking at, looking at saying, okay, how do I get that 15-year-old kid off the streets of my reserve and get him into a trade? How do I get those, the, our young girls you know, to stop going to the urban centers with no future? We got to give them something to, to actually build towards. And it's, th- that story is in progress
0: right here in Haisalat Territory. And it's an amazing story. This um, utility corridor that will stretch from Manitoba uh, to the oil sands in, in Wood Buffalo, Fort McMurray. Um, we're not only talking about oil and gas going down the pipeline to the Hudson Bay, We're talking about Manitoba Hydro coming back into the oil sands and greening it up. What would you say to First Nations along that corridor that may not be aware or maybe um, not understanding of of the magnitude and the opportunity, what would you say to them in terms of the importance of participation in owning these projects and bringing these projects forward and what does it mean to them?
1: Well, I I talked to the the people first, Uh... There, there's an incredible future out there for your kids and your grandkids and your kids uh, yet to be born incredible future, but you've got to, you got to take a chance because every if everything you tried in the last 50, hundred years hasn't worked, then you've got to try something else. And you got to admit, all of us, average or not, we're living in a different world. We're living, living in a different time. I mean, everybody, matter what your walk of life is, everybody wants to provide for their family. Everybody wants to build a house, pay their hydro bill, uh, they want to buy a car, they want to go on vacation, uh, they want to do everything to actually have a really good life. This is what these projects of the, the potential is, but you've got to be going in with a willing mind not only to protect your rights and title but to also build a future and there's so many living examples all over, all across BC and Canada already. My band is just getting started. And my, my people just love what they're doing. You know, they got away from the politics. In fact, when we first started uh, venturing into the oil and gas uh, uh, world, uh, we, we held a meeting in Vancouver. And uh, we, we invited all the Aboriginal communities from BC and Alberta. Uh, BC wasn't ready as First Nations to to embrace major projects. So the the, the idea that we're gonna unite the First Nation communities, that very first meeting that we had in Vancouver, split apart because the First Nations of BC were so focused on the environmental impacts, they wouldn't consider anything else. They wouldn't consider jobs, contracts, training. They wouldn't consider it. Meanwhile, the First Nations from Alberta they said, we've already got the environment issue figured out. That's under the environmental assessment process. We're looking for ways to engage for our people. So that that whole initiative just fell apart on day one. Today you come here, it's a different mindset. Our people are are they, they've seen a good example of how we can do this with LNG. And now they're seeing their kids going out to get jobs. I mean, my daughter is uh when she was 23 years old, she moved off reserve and she got a mortgage. She wants nothing to do with my bank council. A lot of our young people want nothing to do with Aboriginal rights and title. They want nothing to do with the bank council. They want nothing to do with the Indian Act. They just want to live their life. Like they still come to our village, they still do participate in the feasts, they still participate in our culture, but they they want to be independent. And, and it's just an amazing thing to watch. I mean, I, I, I don't know what kind of a study that can prove this, but I truly believe that uh, we uh, actually walk the talk in terms of breaking the cycle. I think we really did it. My, my village is not soaked in booze anymore. It's not. We don't have the, you know, seven or eight houses every weekend that have a party that doesn't exist anymore. And I think it's because these kids that are making really good money now, they can see a better future. They can see better things that they want to do with their money. That's what I mean by that. I'm really hoping that my kids and my descendants don't grow up the same way I did. There's a solution out there for these First Nation communities that are looking at these projects, but it's not going to come from government. I guarantee you. It's going to come from your own community, and it's going to come from your own leadership. But it's all dependent on what you want for your future.
0: Now, how how is the community benefiting in terms of um, uh, the the impacts with with uh, development, but yet balancing their traditional way of life? Um, how is the community balancing that out?
1: You know, if anything, it's made it better because before we were. Uh, Like, we were just scratching for an existence here, uh, prior to to us being engaged with the economy. To give you an example, uh, when uh, there used to be a death in our community, we used to have a fundraiser to help the family out. Now, the band council, under the Indian Act, was allowed to give each family that had a death in their family $75 to help with burial expenses. $75. And it came from the welfare department. So the community would have a benefit dinner to actually help with burial costs, and if we raised a thousand dollars, that was a major accomplishment. Now you fast forward to today. Number one, the the council, you know, figuring out that hey, it costs at least five thousand dollars to bury people, and then that jumped up to two years ago to seven thousand dollars. So my band council took the revenues. From what they're making out of LNG, and they developed this fund, and they say every band member that's on the band list that has a death in their family, you know, we're going to give them seven thousand dollars to help with funeral costs, and it doesn't matter if you're off reserve or not. If you're on the band list, family member passes away, we're going to help you out, and then we got rid of that seventy-five dollar garbage payment that uh, came from the Indian Act, so it actually benefited our culture. And now our people were more focused on okay, let's help out the, the the family now spiritually and with their mourning because now we don't have to worry about money. Uh, our feasts that we give the gifts that our that our people give out when they' when they're feasting now there's just hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gifts that come out now. People are just making huge money in fact, my bank counsel for the first time uh, developed a language and culture program and they fully funded. It. And it all comes from revenues that come from uh, engaging the economy. So if, if anything, uh, this is really strengthening our, our culture now, because people aren't, you know, they're not just focusing on, you know, where's the next paycheck going to come from? You know, how am I going to get groceries on the table? When you, when you're living a life like that, you're not thinking about language and culture. You know, you, you're just struggling to stay alive. Now that my people have are, are, you know, got good jobs now and then they're not worried about money, they're not worried about housing, now they can turn their attention over to their language and culture. So that, that's really how it's strengthened our language and culture.
0: You know, when you look at, um, I remember reading a book by uh, Calvin Haleen called Dancing with Dependencies, and in there he says, the best way to kill a man is to pay him for doing nothing. And yeah. you, you really start to take that pride away, that self esteem, um, that relationship to um, that individual. Um, and what you guys are doing is empowering your community through education, through ceremonies, uh, through employment and training. Like, how fantastic is that?
1: Yeah, you know, we actually started up this new uh, the dance group. I mean, we're adding to our culture now. Because uh, with this COVID-19 virus, you know, self-isolation, the dance group, for moral support, they go around our village and they sing and dance in the streets, outside houses that need moral support. So not only are we trying to maintain our culture, we're actually building new cultures as we move along too. Because nobody is frozen in time. I mean, if we were frozen in time, I'd be living in... uh, uh, probably a longhouse with uh, six or seven different families you guys are probably living in teepees or wigwams Nobody is frozen in time so yes keep your culture try b- bring it back and save us what you got but also we got to develop new cultures and move on too
0: we're, we're facing new issues in the 21st century and it's just it's just fascinating to watch And when you look at murdered missing indigenous women when you look at drugs and alcohol you talked about your community how it doesn't have those drug houses or those party houses anymore. It's mobilized people to get to work. And that's so important.
1: Yes, and in fact, the the downside of this economy with not being included is actually uh, what uh, puts our people in some of the worst conditions ever, that puts them on a roadmap to prison or the children in care, myself included. Because when when you can't see a future, if nobody's explaining a future for you, If nobody's kind of directing your community on a roadmap to a good future, you'll do everything you can to actually make money. And with drugs, yeah, definitely. Selling drugs, yeah. Uh, Bootleg. Everybody knows what bootleg is. Selling fish on the black market. Selling meat on the black market. Uh, Just about all the guys I grew up with, uh, including myself, that didn't have a good opportunity, didn't have a good job, we all did this. It's natural. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, uh, I won't speak for a woman, but I know as a man, I, 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 I didn't feel good going to the welfare office because I was out of work. I felt horrible. I felt bad. I felt like I failed. And, you know, it's how do you fix it? Well, you give that guy the ability to actually look after himself and look after his family. And that way, he never comes back to you. He never comes looking for work. He doesn't go to the black market. And then he starts to look at other values. Family starts to become important. You know, fitness starts to become important. Health starts to become important. Education starts to become important. But when you got no future, you're not thinking about any of that stuff. You're just thinking about, you know, where am I going to get the money tomorrow? And it's a sad reality, but that's what I lived through. That's what my friends lived through. I mean, my, my best friend... Uh, got himself out of uh, cocaine dependency and I watched him go down the the toilet for 15 years and now he's uh, some of the the highest seniority uh, worker at a a gravel and sand company and his only regret was why did I take that wrong road I wasted so much time and I
0: gotta agree with him because I'm in the same boat Well, I think it really speaks to the generational trauma uh, we as Indigenous people have faced. And uh, a lot of times, um, we only know what we don't know. And uh, a lot of times, those resources um, and that uh, ability to get yourself um, back on your feet is not there. And so uh, it's easy to fall into that crack of dependency. It's easy to fall into that crack of um, uh, drugs and alcohol. It's so hard to get out of it, though. It's so hard. Big time,
1: especially when it's all around you and you don't know anything else. I mean, the way I grew up, I thought that was just normal. I thought that was just the way life was. And until I, I started to uh, look outside of my community and started to realize, there's a better life out there. I, I don't have to live like this. And so it's, you know, it, it spreads. You see, You see one young guy getting a job as a truck driver, making 35 bucks an hour, which is freaking crazy money to me. And working twelve-hour days, he's getting time and a half on Saturdays, double time on Sundays. You know, and, you know, I was up at uh, a few years ago when this all started, about five years ago. I was still playing basketball, and I was up at uh, my gymnasium. We're we're sitting on a timeout, basically sitting on the bench. We we're all just goofing around there, playing ball. And one of the guys I used to coach, he was only like uh, probably mid twenties. And they're all talking about the jobs that they were, they were having and all the experiences they were talking about, Oh, I'm going to quit this job and I'll go get another job. And then they started talking about taxes and uh, this one young guy coached, didn't even freaking graduate grade 12. He said, yeah, I'm going to have to pay a lot of taxes this year. Cause I made $120,000 last year. And I was sitting there and I said, guys, do you realize in my whole lifetime, I never even broke $40,000 in one annual period for getting paid. Not once. And even as Chief Counselor, I was only making sixty. And so when all this development started happening, I, I looked at all the people around me and they were all making over $100,000. And here I was, as Chief Counselor, making uh, $60,000, $70,000 a year. And I was just, I couldn't believe it. And, and that just spread. When people saw that other people were making good money and they were using it for to build a better life, more people wanted it. And more and more people started coming to me with their stories about how our lives were turned around. And it's just, there's just amazing stories.
0: That's very powerful. Um, as we get to this project Nistinen, um what would you say to the nations along that corridor around um, maximizing their benefit uh, of participation um, short-term and long-term, uh, from your perspective, of, in terms of what your community has done, what would you share with them in terms of the opportunity and how to capitalize on it?
1: You know, it, when we first started this project, we had no projects at BC to actually uh, duplicate. It had never been done before. And we were talking about these major uh, projects that totaled probably $60 billion in our territory. So we turned around BC and we started asking other First Nations, how did you do it? And we found out nobody had ever done it in BC. So we had nothing to rely on. That has changed. A lot of First Nations now have participated in environmental assessments. they, They understand their rights and title. They understand consultation, accommodation. And whether it be a smaller project, say 500 million, or a bigger project, as I say, it's 10 billion. There's components there that uh, First Nations have actually put in place through trial and error. Like we made a lot of mistakes, but uh, some of the good stuff we did, we benefited on. We're still benefiting from. So the first thing I'd say is, if you really want to understand uh, what your what your what is the potential is. There's a lot of examples you can use. There's a lot of people you can talk to. Uh, that way, you don't have to make the same mistakes that we did, and spend probably, you know, probably six or seven years just spinning your wheels. There, there, there's ways to do this that actually can get you what you want. But number one, you got to understand what you want. Do you really want to get out of dependency? Do you really want to get build your people and your community a better future? then you've got to really take a good hard look at uh, uh, what you're doing right now, as opposed to what you want to do in the future. And there's a lot of people, resources, people like yourself, uh, Clarence Louis, uh, Robert Louis, a lot of leaders that have learned how to do this. I mean, you, you can read their stories, you can read their philosophies, their, their approach, there, there's ways to do this. And you can probably do it in a quicker timeline than what we did here in BC.
0: Um, that needs to be shared across Canada, those, those opportunities of success and, and, and how to benefit and how to create benefit for nations and communities um, like yours.
1: Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And it all comes from opportunity. Like uh, I've given a number of speeches to a number of different uh, organizations as well as First Nations. And they're all asking to, uh, you know, how do we do this? You know, it's going to be different for every community. It's going to be different for every region. But the one thing I do stress is that without opportunity, it's going to be really difficult to do something. So I was asked, how do we do this for some of the remote communities that don't have oil and gas, that don't have forestry, that don't have mining? I don't know. You can't do what we did without opportunity. I mean, it's, it's like my First Nation community, we invested nothing in these projects. Equity was put in the table, but our, our council deliberated a long time on it and said, we're not ready. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the continuity. We don't have the corporate memory. We have none of that. We have no experience as a council getting into business. So we declined equity. And we took, we, we took uh, some other benefits in lieu of that actually sustained our community. But equity was something I had to learn that had risks. Uh, liabilities, responsibilities, right? And my community, we tried a, a, a few different smaller projects, very small scale, and we failed. Because as a council, we, we weren't business people. We weren't a business entity. We we're not ready. Me- meanwhile, First Nation communities down the highway, just down the highway for me, they've got equity in projects. They've got their own legitimate companies making money. But none of this is possible without opportunity. If you don't have an opportunity, whether it's self-generated or somebody else is bringing it into your community for you, uh, then there's really, there's really not much you can do for your community, sad to say. So even if, by, if you're on the fringe of a project, if, if, if it's not directly within your community or in your territory, but you're invited to the table, the best thing you can do, engage, participate and promise you, everybody at that table will find a way to bring some benefit to your community. But, but you're, not gonna, you're not gonna make things any better if you keep closing the door on opportunity.
0: Exactly. So I'd like to thank you for your time today. Um, it's been very informative. Um, I've learned a lot. Um, I can see from your commitment to your community and to the province as a whole, um, you see where things should be. And you've helped lead your community in that direction so i'd like to thank you for that that commitment of creating change for your community for the betterment of uh, today but to tomorrow's generation i'd like to thank and acknowledge that hi hi thank
1: you very much see you guys, see you guys later